Episode 105, Andrea Jones, consultant with two degrees from MIT. Of course, everybody makes mistakes and there's tons of them. What's the one that you maybe learned from the most? And that's kind of what I focused on thinking about this question. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more, go to markgraben.com slash mistake105. If you like the episode, please share it with a friend or colleague on social media, send them a link via email. It won't be a mistake to do so. Our guest today is Andrea Jones. She's a principal at her firm, her company, Andrea Jones Consulting. Andrea has focused on efficient and effective project management and change implementation for over 20 years. And like me, Andrea also loves process improvement. She has a natural instinct uh, for seeking, always focusing on seeking a better way to execute work. So before I tell you a little more about Andrea, let me first say thank you. I'm glad you're here. How are you? Doing well. Thank you again for having me, Mark. Of course. Um, Andrea began her career at Intel Corporation. She was a process engineer, and there she learned, um, she grew to love the use of data, the analysis of data to make uh, recommendations and improvements. And um, she has an educational background that's similar to mine. So uh, like me, she has an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management. She has an engineering master's degree from MIT. And we'll give a shout out because we were both in a program called Leaders for Global Operations. So um, you're the second guest to join us. Uh, Michelle Parrish, who was a previous guest, was also a graduate, yet a different year um, than, than ours. So um, really glad that we can, um, you know, we've got that shared educational background, but you've got really interesting experiences that are different than mine. So I'm glad we can explore all of that today. Sounds good. Um, Andrea's website, if you want to learn more uh, about her and her work, and we'll mention it again at the end, is andreajonesconsulting.com. Um, so Andrea, you know, as we normally do here, you know, we, we dive right into asking a story, thinking back to your career and your different things you've done. What's your favorite mistake? Yes, thanks for asking, Mark. So thinking about this, and you know, of course, everybody makes mistakes, and there's tons of them, and I know you've said this is really not every mistake or a litany, but really what's the one that you maybe learned from the most? And that's kind of what I focused on thinking about this question. And I'll tell the story. So back to finishing that program, LGO program uh, many years ago now, I came out of it. I was working at Intel before I started the program. They sponsored me for the program, which meant that they financed my way through the program, which was very generous. And I was super fortunate. And of course, I had to work for them afterwards. And so I got out of school and went back to work at Intel. Previously, I had been an engineer in the factory, as you sort of mentioned, a process engineer. And I thought, oh, I have an MBA. I can do marketing, um, which, you know, maybe I could do marketing. <laughs> uh, but at the time, I started back at Intel. And I had been in the group, in the marketing group for not, you know, very long, maybe several weeks. Um, and they had hired a consulting firm to evaluate sales and marketing and decided that they were too large and were going to offer 
certain people voluntary separation packages. And I think the mistake, Mark, so you can kind of see where this is going. I was offered a voluntary separation package after Intel had paid for me to go through school within two months of returning back to the company. And it was a huge, I would say, shock at first. And context in the way of a mistake is I think really the mistake, and this is probably true in many of my future mistakes that I'm trying to get better, is thinking that something like that would not happen to me. Right? How could that happen to me? Um, and so, looking back on it, you know, when I first was told I could take a voluntary separation package, and I had the opportunity, if I wanted to, to to maybe look for another job within the company. But I left that process engineering role for a reason. I know we'll get into some of that later. Um, so I decided to take take the option to leave, and it was a little while before I got over it uh, in terms of my ego. I will say, um, and when I say a little while probably years, <laughs> you know, I mean, things years. were going well, um, mm. because after I left Intel, you know, I started looking for another job and this is where the learning from it came. I had really been focusing my career at that company, great company, super fortunate, like I said before, but hadn't considered the wider world. And so experiencing that and being sort of thrown into the wider world, um, I discovered this role that I'm in now, which is consulting. And the reason I really started it is, you know, I started thinking about what I wanted in my life and how I wanted things to go. My husband and I had only been married for a few years. We wanted a family. And so I decided to start my own consulting company. Um, born out of that, you know, mistake of kind of thinking some sort of, you know, failure like that would never happen to me, uh, turned my life into a completely different direction. And I'm very fortunate looking back. So did you join Intel right out of undergrad? Is that right? I did, in fact, I, well, I finished undergrad and then I did this master's program before MIT, I did another master's program in chemistry. Uh, and it was with the University of Oregon. I think they still have this material science focusing on semiconductor processing. So I had an internship with Intel while I was getting my first master's. And then I worked for them basically full-time, took night school for a year and then finished that up and started out of Intel. So yeah, it was really my first job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you had been in many ways, like very committed to the company. They were committed to you. Like you said, sending you uh, to MIT uh, was, was a, a great investment that, that they made in you. But um, so I'm, I'm curious to hear just a little bit more of when, when you're saying, well, yeah, that, that wouldn't have happened to you. Was there, um, like you said, it took a while to get over it. Was there, was there sort of an emotional hangover from that? Did that affect yeah, your ability I mean, to, to, to move into other things or what, what was the impact of that? Right. That's a good question. I don't think it affected my ability to move into other things. I feel like I was able to pivot uh, relatively quickly a couple of months. Um, but I do think that it left a bit of a scar, kind of that, you know, gosh, if, if I was that smart, if I was that good, why would they have asked me to leave? Why wouldn't they have just put me in a new role? Why wouldn't they have, you know, tried to groom me and, and things like that. And, and so I think that that sort of lack of humility maybe is um, the best way to describe it. You know, I had to get over that. And I do think that that's, that's common, you know, and especially for people who have accomplished a lot and have done a lot of things. And, you know, I, right now where I live here in Portland, Oregon, there's a lot of folks who have been asked to leave other large companies uh, in the vicinity and a friend of mine who's asked to leave a company after 20 years of service. And, it's a very real feeling that blow to the ego, you know, 
Um, and I don't, I think it's very normal. Um, and I think it's also a great growth opportunity, but as far as, you know, stopping me from doing other things, thankfully, um, I don't think that was the case. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, you know, when you think of, I mean, like to, to me, I think the mistake here, I mean, I think of the, you, you could argue Intel made a mistake. Um, you know, that they had invested a lot in you and you were, you know, uh, clearly a high potential employee for them to make that investment. Why would they perhaps lose track of you? I'm thinking of, you know, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who was also um, a classmate in my year at the Leadership Global Operations Program. Um, somebody could Google it and figure it out. So I'll just say it's Dell Computer. I don't mean to throw them on under the bus, but you know, a similar large global corporation. And my friend, um, similar background of engineering, had been working in that type of role. She took a career development opportunity in where? Marketing. And then I think a couple of months after that, Dell really had their first large-scale layoffs. And, and she, I don't think it was voluntary. She was swept up in that. And, and then I think this, you know, big company dynamics, she was laid off. And then at some point afterwards, somebody else in the original part of the company that had hired her learned about this and was really upset. Like, how'd you let that happen to her? And, you know, so I think that was Dell's mistake. I know more about, you know, what had happened there. So, I mean, there are, and, and, you know, it's, I'm not trying to say, well, this happens to other people, Andrea. So therefore, you know, it, I don't know if that makes you feel better or if it makes you feel worse, like these, these, these dynamics. Well, at this point, I'm, I'm definitely over it. Um, and I think you're right there. The mistake could go both ways for sure. And it's sad that large companies, good people can get swept up. Like you said, just, it's a numbers thing. It just has to be cut. Um, they're not really looking at individuals, um, you know, but that kind of has shaped the way that I've worked going forward with my consulting firm, right. Which is, we we do we call it the time value of life and we really prioritize that people have a whole life outside of just what they're doing for work i think that work is very rewarding meaningful paid work gives people self-esteem it's values their human dignity it's a creative outlet you feel like you're offering something to the world um, in a way that's obviously valued because you're again getting paid for it it just doesn't have to be all or nothing and and the intel job was very all it was time consuming uh the factory was you know you had to be available at any point during the day and not just the work week also the weekends i don't believe that culture has completely changed from some of the um, engineering departments uh and that's not really always conducive with real life and then you know you think that that's the only thing you can do is work all the time but really the and the option is to just not work at all that's the alternative and what I've learned over the years now is that's patently untrue. There are so many ways to make work, fulfilling work, happen in between those two extremes. And so I've kind of dedicated AJC to that mission, which is, you know, working with amazing, educated, experienced people who have something to offer to the world by way of, of employment and, and meaningful work and pairing them up with companies who need that skill and expertise, but not necessarily at a full-time basis. And we have been so fortunate to find clients that share that value and, and able to 
provide that type of service. Yeah. So, I mean, so I'd like to hear more um, about that. And, you know, for context, you know, I, I work mainly as a solopreneur, if you will. You know, I sometimes work with other firms. You've built a firm with a lot of people. So that's a, that's a whole different level of um, commitment and responsibility. I mean, yeah, I was wondering if you can tell the audience, you know, kind of more about building that firm and how have you maintained that sort of balance of, of focusing on um, the time value of life as, as a mother, as a wife, as the owner of the business? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Building the firm was, I would say, accidental. So when I first started consulting after I'd left Intel and I decided to, to try for it, I thought, you know, we wanted to have a family and I don't want to be beholden to a company if I'm going to be taking maternity leaves, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe I need some time off. Maybe I don't want to work full time. So it was really at first a vehicle for me to continue my career and just and have this family. Uh, and then at the end of 2014, I joined a group called Vistage, which is um, a peer advisory group and became part of a network that had exposure to other business leaders in the area. I, you know, as a young mother, I did not have time to do a ton of networking. Uh, and this is something I think a lot of people, not just not just parents, but a lot of people struggle with is if you want to do the independent work like you're doing, Mark, you know, you have to be building your book while you're delivering the work. And it's very challenging. Um, it was almost like a sinusoidal, right? Feast or famine curve. It was either you're on and working and not doing biz dev or you're not working and all you can do is biz dev. Um, so when I joined this group and I started getting exposure to potential customers, the business started to grow just by virtue of that. I was being referred, which was very fortunate. And I was bringing in people and they were moms like me who had also been at Intel and couldn't, you know, live that lifestyle when they had their family. Um, and it was kind of overflow. I was, I didn't set out to start a firm and I had some peers that had been consulting, you know, maybe more toward the tail end of their career that, they gave me some bad stories about managing people, how hard it is. And, you know, you're dealing with people all the time. And I was like, Ooh, I must not want to do that. So that might've been a mistake too. Cause I think I had the blinders on at first about that. I was like, Oh, I definitely, you know, it's bad for these guys. So it'd probably be bad for me. And, um, and that was a mistake because it actually, I love managing people. <laughs> and it turns out that I really like people uh, and I really believe in people. And so, you know, starting to work with other people and growing the business and bringing in people now as employees, I find that the only reason I'm continuing this business many days is because of the people. If I wasn't serving these people and I didn't believe so strongly how much they have to offer, I just don't think I'd do it. So, you know, it's a time in life kind of thing. I don't know if I could have had the time while we were actively still having newborns to grow the business. It didn't actually start until, you know, my youngest was one, the growth. But now looking back, I wish I would have maybe at least been open to that earlier because um, it's, it's just very rewarding. So was was part of that, um, you mentioned moms in particular, was that meeting other women who were kind of looking for a similar type of work-life integration or wanting to do a job that they, they, they cared about but didn't have to be a full-time, yet alone 24-7, you know, Intel like you said, running literally around the clock by the nature of their business. But did, did, did you, was it a matter of uh, how, oh, I'm, I'm curious, let me ask you a different way. The balance between you were doing good work, clearly, because that's what leads to referrals. You're busy and meeting women that you could describe as talents. You've got client needs, you're finding talent. You're like, I can try to 
put them together? It was a little yeah. bit of both. Yeah. And again, at first it was women that I had, I had personally worked with when I was at Intel in the factory at other engineers. Um, and that's how it started. And then it just grew by word of mouth because once you start telling people, Hey, would you like to do, you know, well-paid intellectually challenging, meaningful work that helps somebody else 15, 20, 25 hours a week and not have to find it yourself. It's like, we call it fondly the unicorn of work. <laughs> you know, it's like the almost impossible thing that it's really hard to find. Um, but it's actually out there. And so people would, you know, my, my employees would refer other people to me and then we'd start just networking and talking and people would come. And, you know, even now we're talking to people, the hardest part sometimes is there's not enough work for everybody who would like to do this type of work. Um, so then my mission now is to grow the business because I, I want to provide that type of work for people who want to do it. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if, uh, so I'm, I'm curious, what's the effect of the pandemic? Does a lot of consultants, myself and others have, have shifted to more of a virtual model. It's not that traditional kind of full-time onsite model. Does Has a shift to more virtual work made it easier to do work that's um, a little more part-time for, for these individuals? Absolutely. Yeah. We were very fortunate in the sense that we have to have a pretty lean and mean overhead model. Mark, I'm sure you can appreciate that. So we don't have an office. We've never had an office. Everybody's always worked from home or gone into client sites when necessary. So when the pandemic hit, you know, it was just instead of doing one or two meetings a week at the client site, you were just doing them over this type of channel, a virtual channel. And that was not hard for us. We were set up that way. We all had our you know, infrastructure in place. Uh, also, we help put in place as project managers, you mentioned before, and process people and change people. We help with all kinds of change, one of them being moving people into cloud-based systems where now it turns out that anybody who didn't already have a cloud-based system really wanted one. <laughs> so we were just fortunate to get some of that work. So the pandemic's been great. And then I I look at the moms, you know, not everybody who works for me is a mom, not even everybody is a woman. Um, but the moms I do have with the kids being at home for school, you know, I have four kids. Now they're in seventh grade, fifth grade, third grade, and first grade. It is not easy when they are all home and you're trying to get them on their stuff. Trying to hold down a full-time job while doing that is next to impossible. But trying to maintain 15 to 20 hours a week is, is totally possible and a welcome break, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> are, are there times from a, a managing client, expect, uh, client expectations standpoint where you have to, do you have to sort of sometimes draw some boundaries and, and make sure that, you know, if somebody's uh, working well with a client, there might be a tendency for that work to then expand. Yes. There's always that. And our team is very talented. So that does happen. Um, you know, I, I can't say we're perfect. We have a couple of things we try to do. One is we try to provide an account manager for our clients, which is either myself or Barry, my head of uh, operations. So that if that type of scope creep does happen, the consultant can tell us about it and they don't have to go to the client and push back because it doesn't feel good to have to do that. And then vice versa, if the client, you know, has some sort of feedback for the consultant, they can tell us and we are able to mediate that with the minimal amount of, you know, conflict or emotional response. Um, so that's been very valuable. And then I think everybody, I, I'd be curious to know if you've experienced this in the last year of doing these interviews, people just kind of understand now. Whereas before you, you kept your home at home and your work was work and, you know, heaven forbid that 
you know, your kid would interrupt you in the middle of a call. I mean, that's just life. That's life. And people are very, very gracious about it. I would say these days. I've, I've found that. So, I mean, that, that's an interesting point where, you know, I would say anymore, it would really be viewed as a mistake for somebody on a zoom meeting, zoom conference call, um, to get upset or snippy about the dog barking or a kid coming in the room. I think generally people would say, Hey, look, these are challenging times. Have a little grace, um, cut people some slack. Will that extend back to circumstances of work-life balance that aren't as visible? Like when that child runs through the screen, like that, that's really clear and obvious. And like, you might say, Oh, the kid's cute. No, it's okay. Back to a regular workplace where somebody needs time away from work mm-hmm. for what might seem like sort of an invisible reason. I wonder if people will continue extending that grace or if if if, if it's going to be different. You know, I hope so. And I'm glad you're bringing it up because I think there is a huge opportunity that we have to allow for a bit more flexibility, whether people are in a full-time role or not. Um, you know, it's not inconceivable to say, here's the expectations I have for, you know, results, right? Presentations to be done, this to be ready, whatever, and by these times, and then let adults figure out how to do it. Um, seems reasonable to me. That's how we built our business. Uh, so I guess, I, <laughs> you know, I think setting really clear expectations up front, if you can, you know, will lead to that. And I'm very hopeful that companies will start to offer those types of opportunities to be flexible and maybe look at it as more of a, maybe an agile type approach. Like instead of thinking somebody has got to be on all the time and how much can we cram into their work week? It's what are the most important things that we need to get done as a team and how can we pull off the top and constantly be re-looking at that, but have, you know, shorter increments of work so that we can pivot when the future changes because it is going to change. And I bet everybody now has a global pandemic on their risk mitigation strategy for the future, where probably not very many folks had it on before. Um, true, true. So hopefully we can see some of that through into the future. Have you seen other companies starting to look at that? In terms of the flexibility dimension? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, but it's still in the context of the times that we're in right now as we're recording this in late April. Um, of 2021. So, you know, there's a, a software company I'm involved with called um, Kinexus that uh, is, is still extending a lot of that flexibility of where people are. Some people have uh, re- relocated across the country to different time zones for different reasons related to their family or to their life. And the business keeps going on. Um, so there, there's been additional flexibility extended that way. And I think that's just always been part of um, the mindset and the approach at the company to um, to give flexibility to not micromanage details about how and where and when the work that gets done. Mm-hmm. Like there's clearly there's some work, there's some meetings that have to be done in a synchronous way. And then there's a lot of work that doesn't have to be. I think a lot of that's born from, you know, the CEO uh, Dr. Greg Jacobson, who was one of the early guests in this podcast. I listened to that one, yeah. <laughs> he's he's an ER doctor who still occasionally works some ER shifts 
um, during the month. So they might be night shifts or occasionally it's a 24 hour shift. So there are times when his schedule, every, everyone else has to give him some grace around, okay, Greg's not available this Tuesday because he's worked a 24 hour ER shift the night before, but he's still effective as a leader and as the CEO and things go on. So I think because he's got some of that circumstance in his own professional life, you know, he's, he's, he's a good guy where he isn't going to ask others to do something he's not right. doing himself or not creating a, a separate standard for others. I think that's just good leadership, you know, that, that he's exhibiting. I, I agree. It's nice. And employees can see that he has something that's very meaningful that he's passionate about doing outside of this business, you know, and they can take that as a role model and example. I think that's great. You know, the other thing is I do hope we get to still experiencing each other in person. You know, I think the ideal model for us or maybe me personally is if we could kick off projects in person, right? Spend a few days together, have a meal together, build some rapport, some friendships and context around each other's lives, get to know each other. Then after that, I think a quarterly refresher is pretty much, I wouldn't say all you need. And this is certainly not every project or every situation, but it does feel like if every 90 days you can get to see each other and re-up that tank, uh, after that you can you can go for a little while and be a little more productive. Um, the other thing I want to mention, because maybe companies will listen to this and think, yeah, it's really hard to be that flexible. We're still paying people X, Y, Z. And if we're not getting that type of productivity out of them, how can we afford that? I actually think that people are willing to take less pay for this type of flexibility. I really believe that. Um, you know, my people, we don't pay full-time salaries. We can't do that. We're not billing people full-time, but they're very happy to, you know, obviously be compensated, fairly compensated well for the hours they work, but don't need that crazy excess. People are realizing that, again, the time value of life, you're just not going to get it back. You know, I took my kids to the pool last Friday afternoon because there was an in-service day and the kids have a half day. And I mean, Friday afternoon, I'm picking my kids up at noon and I'm taking them to an outdoor pool. You can't do that with most employers, but I'm not going to be able to do that with them all the time. You know, I want to do that. Um, one other question I wanted to ask, you'd made reference to it, um, you know, that your team is not all moms. It's not necessarily all women that you do have some men on the team. Have you found that is it similar circumstances where there, there are men, whether they are dads or not, where there's a similar appeal to having the flexibility of doing um, a job that would normally have to be a full-time job mm -hmm. on a less than full-time basis? We, we had a dad on our bench and his wife was a radiologist, is a radiologist. So, you know, he was in a sort of flip model situation and, and loved the model. Um, we have two gentlemen that are, you know, maybe they've worked a full and productive career and are like, and I think this is a, another wonderful and unexplored uh, tap, untapped resource or demographic is the almost retirees. You know, like if you've been working full time plus for 40 years and you don't want to step away from it completely, you have a lot to offer, but you also don't want to push those kind of hours anymore. We have some folks in that situation um, women, men, you know, I think it's great. And, and our clients are benefiting from their expertise. I've, I've seen that work really well. There's a um, large, really well-known, you know, lean management process improvement firm that uh, it's not exclusively their model, but generally they'll take somebody who's been a plant manager, vice president of manufacturing. They take an early ish retirement from their company and then they can, I, I, at least at the time, they could choose. Did they want to work how many weeks a month? 
mm-hmm. full time, three weeks a month, two weeks a month. I don't know if they let anyone work just one week a month, but but I yeah, I think it was a, a similar type of thing. So how do and then you know I'd be curious to see as expectations evolve um, for different reasons. Are there yeah younger people who whose whose personal family overall situation makes that compatible for them too? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of things people want to do in life. I don't think everybody thinks it's all about money these days. If they ever did, right, that might've just been a perception. <laughs> um, and, and for us too, right, we could obviously be a more profitable company if I was pushing everybody out at more than full-time billables and paying them all salaries and recouping the excess. I mean, I just, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't sit right. It doesn't align with our beliefs at all. <laughs> Uh, we want to be doing this for helping people and and feeling like we're really contributing. Um, so again, our guest has been Andrea Jones. Her firm is Andrea Jones Consulting. And one other thing I'd like to touch on before we wrap up, because I, I know we have a shared interest in this idea of thinking about change as uh, a series of experiments. So I wonder if you could share um, some of your thoughts on on what that means to you. Why is that important? Yes. Thank you for asking. I think that life is about trying things and recognizing that they're not always going to turn out the way you thought they would maybe when you got started. You know, the consulting company, case in point, right? I didn't think I would consult. I thought I would be at Intel. Uh, I didn't think I'd have employees. Turns out that's great. I love it. Um, And I think, you know, you've probably heard people say fail, fail often, fail quickly, fail fast. But the difference is you have to be ready to admit that, right? (laughs) And to really accept reality. So if you can say this didn't go well and and mea culpa it if it's your fault and almost to a fault, if you can admit or accept some level of the blame, especially as a leader, I think everybody will be much more open to having a productive conversation about what really happened without getting to that feeling of I'm being blamed for this and fear, you know, and gets you past it faster. And it's, it's just, like you said, it's an experiment. I think Simon Sinek is now going and calling this an infinite game. Have you heard this new phrase from him? No. no that work and life in general is an infinite game. It's not a game where there's a finite point that you have to win or lose, right? It's going to keep going. So it, because of that, we get to experiment. We get to make these mistakes. We get to try again. And if we can admit that and, and show that level of vulnerability with those around us, especially in leadership positions, everybody's just going to get there a whole lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that, right? I make little mistakes you know, every single day. Uh, yeah. Like just this morning, I sent out an invoice without putting a specific piece of information on it that I probably should have put on it. And I will not make that mistake again. <laughs> you know, I mean, just little things that happen. Um, but without being open to knowing, yeah, I'm, I'm fallible. And maybe that's the whole theme of this. I can make mistakes and it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And we're all in it together. If you can have a team that's there to support you, all the much better, you know, and, and it's just human. Um, mm-hmm. And we're all in it together. We want to help each other be better. Yeah. We all make mistakes. And I mean, this harkens back to more. I think this was Richard Nixon, Watergate era phrase. It's, it's not the crime, it's the cover up. And I'm not saying mistakes are crimes. But like you said, when um, people are pressured, uh, when there's a, a culture of fear where they can't speak up, 
then that means mistakes just keep going and, and perpetuating. Like, yeah, I don't know all the details about it, but I saw a story from uh, Ontario, Canada the other day where the, the headline was, you know, six patients had been mistakenly injected with saline instead of vaccine. Now, you know, the vaccine from Pfizer gets diluted with saline. And so at some point, somebody discovered, and I'm guessing that you know, there, there are process checks where what, what I, I do know from looking at vaccination sites is that the vials are tracked and counted very carefully for traceability and it's logged on your vaccine, vaccine card and all that. So at some point, there must have been an oh bleep moment where somebody realized, okay, our count is off. What ha- we've got this vial and, and, and what happened and somebody was able to trace through and figure out we must have injected them with saline. Like this would, this couldn't have been necessarily observed, but you would have to kind of in, um, in, uh, you know, kind of problem solve your way to figuring out that must've been what happened. Now I'll give credit, whatever the dynamics were in that organization, like clearly somebody felt safe to speak up because otherwise you think of the harm to those six people. If somebody had felt ashamed, embarrassed to the point where they somehow covered that up, those are six people now who think they're vaccinated who were not. So, I mean, I think, you know, some people might look at that story and say, well, how could that happen? Well, to your point, Andrea, people are human. You know, we can try to design systems that make it impossible for somebody to make an error, whether it's with the invoice or something like um, vaccination. And, and, and that's why we explore that um, so often here on this podcast. Um, so anyway, just random, 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 random sidetrack. Well, I think it's great that you are shedding light to this topic, right? Like my favorite mistake implies that there's a lot of good that can come out of mistakes. And that's very true. So thank you for doing it. Yeah. Well, and thank you for being the guest and sharing, you know, not just your story up front, but as you've gone through this experiment of starting a business and then starting to grow it um, in a different way. And I'm sure at some point that first, well, I mean, it sounds like you had a solid hypothesis, but there were experiments with the part-time model and it seems like that's working out actually. They're all experiments. I mean, we've learned so many things. Uh, I would take years to go through all of them. (laughs) Well, and I'm glad you um, agreed to the experiment of doing the episode today. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again for letting me participate. Thank you for doing it. All right. Take care. Thanks again to Andrea for being our guest today. For links, show notes, and more information about Andrea and her work, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake 105. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me my favorite mistake podcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.